0: Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 5, The Kings, the human ones. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can find Episode 1 easily at 15minutesontheway.com. Otherwise, brace yourself for a podcast in God's voice telling His side of your story. Toward the end of our last episode, Israel had gotten trounced by the Philistines when Israel went up against the Philistines without checking in with me first. Then, adding insult to injury, instead of processing things with me after their first loss, they go back against the Philistines with one change. They take my ark with them, thinking I will be with them, And agreeing with Denham Elliott in Raiders of the Lost Ark when he says, actually, as Marcus, Dr. Marcus Brody, an army with the Ark at its head is invincible. Oh, my, my, my. There are so many things wrong with this picture, aren't there? First of all, and as if, as if I need to protect myself from anything. We both know the Ark is a device I've chosen with which to relate to humanity in its still very developing stages, and that a physical seat of my presence is something I've done to help them sense our connection with them. I am not confined to that particular piece of furniture, though I've ordained it to be used so, and it's as fancy as it can be. In beating the Israelites and capturing the ark which you saw coming, the Philistines capture me no more than filling a balloon with air captures the earth's entire atmosphere. What's so very wrong with this picture is what it says about Israel's view of me. I am not a good luck charm, but that's how the Israelites are trying to use me right now. You can't get me out and rub me when you need something, friend, no matter how much you may gift-wrap the attempt. Now, you don't have an ark to trot out when you think I'd come in handy, but you have some equivalents. The Israelites' way of asking me to show up to the battle and take care of things was simply to bring the ark. Instead of pulling out an arc, you usually ask me for something, but not in the seeking Yahweh's presence and will way, but in the time to pull out Yahweh the good luck charm way. And these good luck charm moments usually come when you've not bothered to even acknowledge my existence for a long time. Not necessarily, though. Even you religious folk suffer from the good luck charm habit, too. But all the religious-looking and sounding prayer in the world falls on deaf ears if it's all about you and what you want in the moment to the exclusion of any larger perspective that includes others and me. I am not going to jump through hoops because you pray certain prayers or pray a certain number of them or do other things like donate a bunch of money or something you think I'd like or walk up a flight of steps on your knees, or whatever. You can't manipulate me, friend. You can't make me do anything. And if your motivation for doing something good, like praying or helping others, is simply so I'll do what you want in this narrow, selfish, all-about-you way, stop trying to buy me. By all means, do good but do it for the benefit of others, not to earn points with me so that I'll owe you a favor. Insert the appropriate as if here. It should be obvious that the power's not in the Ark. It's an object that points to me, and yes, is truly connected to me because I connect to it. But the power's not in the object. The power's in me. I've got the power. Oh, yes, I do, and yes, I did. Again, it goes likewise with other things people associate with me in your habitat. Church-going, praying, serving others. Yes, there is power in prayer, but the power's there because it's mine. You have the power to pray, yes, but the power to answer is, well, mine. It doesn't depend upon how beautifully you pray or whether you say things in a right sequence. It doesn't depend very much on your side at all, although you're an important kickstarter. The part you supply, however, is less about what words you use and more about the heart that moves you to say them. In the end, though, the working of prayer ultimately depends on me. Obviously, there's a whole lot to unpack when we start talking about prayer in general, so we are not going to go there any further right now. You get the point, though. The point that I am not some kind of high-power weapon or high-power tool that you have control over. I am not a rabbit's foot, nor is the ark, nor is anything else associated with me. God I am. Hoop jumper I am not. So Israel gets its butt kicked, and among the casualties are Hophni and Phineas, who are struck down and killed by the Philistines. Of course, had they stopped the leaders at some point and said, before we do anything else, let's inquire of Yahweh what's best, instead of swaggering and strutting in front of the ark like they've got the power, things would have gone differently. As it is, Thousands more die unnecessarily, and the ark is taken by the Philistines. Despite the ark's magic not seeming to work for Israel that day, the Philistines still think my ark and I may be some kind of divine good luck charm on their behalf. More on that in a moment. First, though, this is a day I have foreseen, and the day of which I told little Sam a few years ago in our first midnight chat with him. It is a day of judgment on Hophni and Phinehas for their callous hearts. So disturbing to Eli is the report of my ark's capture and his miscreant son's demise that he falls off his chair, breaks his neck, and dies himself. Phinehas's wife is propelled into sudden labor at the news of what's happened on the battlefield, and she dies in giving birth, living just long enough to name her newborn son No Glory, or... Ichabod, thus providing the village of Sleepy Hollow with a perfectly named schoolteacher in years to come. The Ark's capture signals that all glory has departed from Israel. This has all happened as a consequence of Ichabod's father and uncle and grandpa, to some extent, who raised his apples poorly. They failed to properly discharge their duties as the spiritual leaders of my people now though they are no more the old has gone and it is time for the new my pivot the plan man samuel of course there's a little intervening drama with the philistines and my ark in first samuel five once they get it home i can't have them thinking they have any control over me either And that non-god of theirs, Dagon, certainly still has to be shown for what he is, or rather isn't. So when the Philistines get their plunder, my ark, back home to another one of their chief cities, Ashdod, they put it in the temple of Dagon. In case you took a long break between chapters, Dagon's the same poser whose temple in Gaza, another of the five chief Philistine cities, was brought down by Samson in Judges 16. So they put my ark in the temple of Dagon smack dab right next to his big ugly idol. By doing so, they're gloating that their god has proven superior to me in battle. Well, you know what really happened, and the Philistines catch a clue themselves when they stroll in the next morning and find their precious Dagon idol face down before me or at least before my representative ark, in the posture of worship and defeat. At first they all think they must have slept through some earthquake that knocked it over, and they just heave the statue back upright. But then Dagon is lying prostrate before me again the next morning, this time with his hands and head lopped off to really underscore his powerlessness. And then the plague starts. Everybody in Ashdod and its suburbs is hit with nasty tumors, and the Philistines put old Pharaoh to shame by getting the message with the first try. The Ashdodians rightfully see a connection between their idols' prone powerlessness, their own bodily afflictions, and the presence of my ark in their general proximity. Not knowing what else to do at first, they play a game of hot potato only this time it's a game of hot ark. The tumored people of Ashdod ship my ark off to their closest neighbor in the fab Philistine five, Gath, about twelve miles away. For those of you marking your scorecard, the Philistine's five principal cities are Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, Ashdod, and Ekron, from south to north. Sending off the ark confirms the suspicions of Ashdod, as the folks in Gath are all suddenly plagued with tumors, too. The game continues, and Gath passes the hot Ark up to neighboring Ekron, who suffer the same plague. Before they can pass it on to another city, though, some genius recognizes the need for a more permanent solution, and says it's time to send the Ark back to where it came from. These guys get an extra perspicacity point for the method they come up with for moving the ark away. Uh, We're in 1 Samuel 6 now. It not only removes my ark from their presence, it also confirms that the plague's been a direct result of their improper possession of my sacred space. They put the ark on a cart, along with an offering of gold to me, To make clear their desire to be rid of these tumors, the gold is shaped like them. One golden tumor for each of their five cities, along with five golden rats. These brutes have associated the plague with rodents, which probably rings a bell, and they'd like that infestation and its spread stopped, too. The genius isn't in the goldsmith's ability to make unexpected, make that least expected, figures of tumor and rat with gold. No, the genius is in the horsepower provided, or rather, the cow power. They choose two mama cows which have recently given birth to pull the wagon. Not only are they new mothers, but they've never pulled a cart before, something that isn't exactly second nature to the bovine population, if you're not a farmer. And even though they don't know how to pull a wagon, even though they can hear their beloved calves hollering for milk back in the corral, those cows head straight up the road without looking back, straight to the nearest Hebrew town over at the start of the hill country, Beth Shemesh, with the Philistine rulers slinking behind to make sure the ark makes it safely out of their territory, which it does. And the successful unnatural transport proves to them that it was my hand that had been heavy upon them, not mere coincidence. Well, the Israelites are so excited to see me, or at least my ark, that they drop their harvest in the field, chop up the wagon for firewood chop up the cows for sacrifice, and make a burnt offering to me right then and there. Sadly, some non-Levites, Levites uh, Levites would have known better, are so excited to see the ark that they decide to get a close-up look at it, and in it, which means touching it to lift the lid, and we've covered this ground before, and if the ark is holy, it's holy. And if it's not supposed to be touched, it's not supposed to be touched, even if it's been in enemy hands for seven months. And if you touch the ark, you, well, Seventy people lose their lives because of their careless haste. The Levites are called in and handle the rest according to specs. But the lives of the seventy Beth Shemeshers have been lost, so after offering up their sacrifice to celebrate the return of my ark and presence, the folks of Beth Shemesh play one final round of hot ark and pass it off to the nearby town of Kirioth jerim the residents of which have the sense to neither handle nor sneak a peek inside the ark. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or on Facebook. Then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. You can find a link to our Patreon page there as well. We're sponsored by the Oakhaven Church in the Barn in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Oleksandr Zadoyani writes our theme music at smartmediamusic.com. Kenny Iker designs our website graphics, kennyeicherart.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.